So good evening once again, everyone. Welcome to session number 28 of our Bible Basics webinar. It's really amazing to be with you once again. And uh, I, I think after more than half a year, this is becoming quite a regular routine, a, a part of our weekly activities. And we hope that you're benefiting from our examination of the scripture as much as, as we are. Joining us this week is Mr. Ron Kidd. He's going to lead our key Bible theme section. And he'll start in about 15 or 20 minutes with the theme, the kingdom of God, a theme that's very familiar for those of you that have been with us throughout the webinars. Uh, but Ron promises to look at this theme from a new perspective tonight. So we'll look forward to that. But first, we're going to go through our Finding Our Way section, and we're going to look at an overview of the remaining five books or remaining three books of the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. We've looked at Genesis and Exodus already, and we're going to give you an overview of the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, books that we consider to be written by Moses. And I thought in, in that regard, it, it would be very interesting to look at this introductory verse from Exodus chapter 33. And it says there, the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friends. And what a marvelous relationship is described here that God had with, with Moses. And, and look for that when you read through the first five books of the Bible. Look at the presence of God everywhere. There's, there's conversations that Moses has with God. And we believe those to be conversations that Moses had with an angel that represented God. And we're told in, in Numbers that Moses was very meek, that he was more meek than all the rest of the men upon the face of the earth. And meek refers to being humble and, and teachable. And I think that's this characteristic that made Moses a man which God could work with. And perhaps the reason that God used Moses as the author of the foundational books of the Bible. Now, remember, as we think of Moses as the author, you don't want to lose sight of the fact that really these books are the words of God, the inspired words of God. And Moses then is writing down the words that God gave unto him. Now, it's, it's generally accepted that Moses is the author of the first five books, and you'll see them here on the screen, and if you can read that tiny print on these books, you might notice that the books are in reverse order than the order that we would normally think of. But the first five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I'll tell you in a minute why they're in reverse order. But you may have heard of these books as the Pentateuch. And that's a, a word that comes from the Greek, and you'll see on the screen it refers to the five scrolls. But these books can also be recalled the Torah, and that's a Hebrew word, uh, a word that actually appears many times in, in our Bible, in the original language in which the Old Testament was written. And the Torah, well, it can refer to a broader reference to all the books of the Hebrew Bible, or even to the religious teaching of the Jews, we're using it here in its meaning as the first five books of the law of Moses. And uh, that's the reason the books here are in reverse order, because in Hebrew, writing goes from, from right to left. And this picture came from a website that was referring to the, the Torah. And uh, here's a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 11, where the word Torah shows up in the original Hebrew. And it's, of course, uh, bolded there. It refers to the law. And uh, what I like about these verses here in Deuteronomy is that it teaches us that 
God had Moses write things down with the intention that people could refer to it regularly, that it would be read. And you can see there in the second verse that they were to gather all their families together and, and all the people that they knew and regularly read from the law that had been written down for us. It was even a part of their national gatherings when they assembled as a nation. So there's a lesson for us that we, we need to read the Bible every day. We can read it by ourselves, but we should get into the habit of reading with our family, reading in a group, reading with our friends. And uh, we also have here in Exodus 31, then an allusion to the idea that Moses was commanded by God to write down all the things that God had spoken to him. I remember that relationship that Moses had with the angel of God that he'd spoken to many, many times face to face. Well, Moses recorded all that. And that's the result that we have in the first five books of the Bible. And I want to give you a, a quick summary of what's in these last three books of the Pentateuch or the, or the Torah. And uh, we're going to have to go fairly quick because uh, we have a lot to cover. The first of the last three books is, is Leviticus. And in English, the title is rather self-explanatory, especially if you're familiar with the first part of that word, Levi. And so the English title tells us that the, the book of Leviticus deals with events and, and activities that relate to the Levites. And you'll know that Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And because of the faithfulness of this tribe, as described in, in Exodus, which we looked at last week, God gave this tribe a special responsibility. They were made ministers of the worship of God. And the priests of the nation came from the tribe of Levi. And so we have here, you see some of the key topics of the book, and you can see the relationship that they would have to the tribe of Levi. We've got a description of offerings and sacrifices. There's seven chapters that deal with how the people were to prepare sacrifices of animals and other things that they would bring to God. And I think the average person today with no context and and not an understanding of the Bible might think that killing an animal and bringing it to God would be something that would be a heartless, uncivilized act. But it's really completely the opposite. We'll, we'll find out, and we're going to look at this in a moment, that there were various types of sacrifices. And they taught lessons. They were done according to rules set out by God. And there were, they were like object lessons for the offerer. And the priests were like teachers who would explain what each of the offerings represented. Well, the book of Leviticus also outlines the roles and duties of the priests, right down to the very details of their service and what they would wear. And all of these things are full of symbolism. They're quite interesting when you start to study them. There's a list in Leviticus of clean and unclean animals. Uh, there were rules specifically that would uh, help the nation avoid some of the diseases that would, that would take place, uh, that were easily contracted. But really, primarily, the lesson of the classification of the clean and unclean animals was to teach the people discernment, that they would be able to look and apply principles that God had taught the nation, that they'd learn that there's a thing such as right and wrong, and that that right and wrong depended on the direction of God himself. It's not something that we would decide for ourselves. Leviticus is, is really cool how it, it contains rules related to public health, principles that uh, were thousands of years ahead of, uh, ahead of science. 
uh, principles that mean a lot to us today about washing with running water, about quarantine if you had leprosy, about covering your mouth to present the, the spread of disease. And people who look at the Bible marvel at how these rules were so far ahead of the other nations, which had rules that, that weren't the same. And there's also rules about the feasts and property laws that made the nation work better. And uh, you can see all these things when you look at the book of Leviticus. And you also learn the principle that's here in verse 26 of Leviticus chapter 20. And the principle was that God wanted the nation to be holy, uh, that they would be different, that they would be separated, and that all the people would be God's. I just lost my place here for a second. Okay. So as we continue on here, I wanted to spend a minute just looking at the fascinating uh, details of the offerings. One of these key elements that's here in the book of Leviticus. Now, when you think of the Old Testament, animal sacrifice might be one of the things that you would think about. And uh, Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 describe how animal sacrifice should be made. And, and there weren't just animals. There were, in fact, many different types of offerings. And each came with a lesson, a principle that the priest would have explained to the offerer who came into, into, the, into the presence of the priest. And uh, look at these offerings. The first one was the burnt offering. And the interesting thing about the burnt offering is that the entire animal was burnt on the altar. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 1. And the animal, as it was offered, is described as the smoke rising up as a sweet savor to God. Now, the offerer, before he offered it, would put his hand on the animal. And that teaches us that the animal was to be a representation of the person. And so the lesson of the burnt offering was that we should give our entire lives to God, just as the entire animal was burnt to God. But what's fascinating is that there was one part of the animal that wasn't burnt on the altar, and that was the skin of the animal, because that would be representative of the outward appearance of man. And God isn't interested in our outward appearance or the appearance as if we're dedicating our life to God. God wants us to give our life in service and to serve him from the heart. And then there was an offering called the meal offering, and it wasn't an animal. It, it actually consisted of flour and honey and oil. And what was neat about this offering was that it could be prepared in various ways. You could take those ingredients and make it into a cake. You could make it into bread that was fried in a pan. There was various ways that you could give it back to God. And, and it symbolized taking what God had given you, working with it, and giving it back to God. So imagine you'd have to take the wheat and thresh it, you'd grind it into flour, and then you'd prepare it into this cake or this bread, and you had to give it to God. And so you, it's a recognition that everything that we have is God's, and we have to give some of it back in, to him in service. The peace offering represented fellowship, because the interesting aspect of the peace offering was that part of the animal was burnt on the altar to God, part was given to the priest who would eat it, and part was eaten by the offerer himself. So in effect, the person who brought this sacrifice was allowed to share a meal with God and share a meal with the priest. 
What a beautiful picture of, of fellowship. And then we have the sin offering and the trespassing, trespass offering. Um, speaking of forgiveness and the trespass offering of the fact that sometimes the sins that we commit cause other people, uh, affect other people, and that we need to make restitution. So for example, in the trespass offering, if, if you've stolen something or um, taken something from someone else, you had to give it back and you had to add extra to it. Well, th those are some of the fascinating things that you'll see in the book of Leviticus. And of course, it's time to move on because we want to look at uh, the book of Numbers. Now, in English, the English title is very obvious, and it has to do with the numbering of the nation. And the first chapter of, of Numbers, there's a census. And there's another census taken at the end of the book of Numbers. And all the men from 20 years old and upward were numbered, and there was over 600,000 men. But perhaps a better description of this book is the Hebrew title for the book, which, as you might recall, is always taken from the first key word of the books of Moses. And uh, if you looked at Numbers 1, verse 1, it starts with in the wilderness. And that's what this, this book is about. And if you look at the details on the right-hand side of the slide, we see that it has to do with the logistics of being a nation. Imagine between one and two million people in the wilderness. So God described how you would arrange the camp, how they would march when they went from one place to the next. One of my uh, favorite chapters in the book of Numbers is to do with the Nazarite law, the vow that we could be taken by a natural Israelite, where they could become, as it were, one of the priests. They could let it dedicate their life in service to God. You might want to have a look at Numbers chapter 6. It's, it's a fascinating chapter. Well, there's descriptions of what the priests and the Levites were to do. They were to be the spiritual leaders of the nation. Because the time in the wilderness wasn't just about getting them out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was about making the people of Israel a nation of holy men and women. Well, the book of Numbers also deals with key events like the manna that came down from heaven. That's how God provided them food in the wilderness. And you'll look at the other events that are there and you'll see that a lot of them had to do with their lack of faith. The spies who were afraid to go into the land of Canaan because of the giants. And because of their lack of faith, the nation had to wait 38 years before going into the land. There's the rebellion of, of Korah and his friends, men who had an important position in the nation, but envied the leadership that God had given to Moses and Aaron. And they arranged a rebellion, and God judged them with an earthquake. And then there's the event of the fiery serpents that God sent when the people murmured and complained. And God set up a, a serpent on a brass pole. And whoever looked upon the pole and believed were healed of the bite of the serpent. And you don't have to think too much to see how that points forward to Christ, that we can look to Christ who was hung on a pole and can save us from the sting of, of sin. Well, this slide I put up because... I want to remind you that when you're reading through books like Leviticus and Numbers, there's a lot of resources out there that can help you understand these sections of scripture, especially in books that we might be less familiar with. And here on the, on the screen is a visual description of the camp of Israel. It's kind of like a summary of Numbers chapter 2 and 3. We have the people camped in their tribes, and the numbers there are the, the number in each tribe. 
But what's really cool from a visual like this is what was at the center of the nation of Israel in the wilderness? Well, it was the tabernacle. It was the place that God dwells. And what a lesson that is to us that God needs to be at the center of our lives. And then there's maps that can help us with this time period. Uh, this is a very simple map without any place names. And uh, you can just see how they come out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. They wander in the wilderness and they eventually enter into the land of Canaan. And I put up this uh, graphic. There's certainly more detailed ones that you can, can turn to to help you find your way. But the book of Deuteronomy, which we come to at the end of our session here, takes place just before that arrow on the red line. They're just about to go into the land of Israel. And uh, it's a repetition of the laws. There's a, a repetition of all the events that had taken place in the wilderness. And in fact, the word Deuteronomy, the English title we have, means the second law. Not that it was a new law, but it was a retelling of the law to the next generation. Because you might remember, because of the people's lack of faith, God declared that those that came out of Egypt would not be allowed to enter the land. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. So God took this opportunity through Moses to tell the next generation the principles upon which their life needed to be based. And you can see some of the 10, or sorry, some of the events that are described in the book of Deuteronomy, the 10 commandments, a repetition about what happened with the golden calf, rules about them going into the land and setting up the cities of refuge, laws for battle when they went to, to defeat the Canaanites that lived in the land that they would inherit, blessings and cursings, the appointment of Joshua to be the captain. And finally, the book ends with the death of Moses. And what the key verse of Deuteronomy might be is this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul? And to me, that sounds like a New Testament verse. Um, the, the book of Deuteronomy repeats many of the laws and events from the other books. But this time, there's an emphasis on a deeper meaning. And, and this brings us to the last point I want to make tonight, is that the law of Moses had a deeper meaning. Many people think of the law of Moses and these books of the Old Testament as if they're obsolete, that they were replaced, almost as if God changed his mind and rescinded the Old Testament and gave mankind, mankind a new gospel. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Look at this verse from Matthew chapter 22, just a, a couple of minutes as we look at what Christ had to say about the law of Moses. In Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him what the greatest commandment of the law of Moses was. And look at his response there in Matthew 22. He, he repeats the fact that we have to love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind. And he says it also applies to our neighbor. And so if we take all the rules of the, of the law of Moses, the summary is that we should love God and we should love our neighbor. And that's what the, we should see when we look at the law of Moses. But uh, Jesus took it a, a step further. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, it says in Matthew chapter 5, or Jesus said there. He said he came to fulfill the law. And look at how he did this. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have a chance, look at it. Jesus said, you know, you've heard that 
it hath been said, thou shalt not kill. That was one of the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus took it a step further and said, well, what is the root cause of murder? Well, it's anger. It's, it's hatred. And he says that if you even are angry or hate your brother without a cause, you'll be in danger of judgment. And if you follow through Matthew chapter 5, Jesus takes this, this same approach with other laws from the law of Moses. Another Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus says the root of that is having lustful eyes to look after a woman. He, he talks about the fact that the Old Testament talked about, you know, the oath that we made. And the Jews had mixed that up and said, well, an oath only mattered if you, if you swore by heaven or by Jerusalem. And Jesus said, no, no matter what you say, whether you say yes, it should mean yes. When you say no, it should mean no. The law said to love your neighbor. It didn't say to hate your enemy. That was the idea of the day. But, but Jesus said, no, we need to love our neighbor and love our enemies. And so Jesus taught us that the law was a, a shadow that would teach us the principles that would be expounded further in the New Testament. I was looking on the internet for a picture that would describe this. And if you look just at the shadow, you'd recognize that there was a person with a basket on their head. But you don't see the details. You don't see the, the color in the dress. You don't see the color of the basket. And so the law was like that. It pointed forward to principles that we would see more clearly when we come to Christ. And finally, the law was also a schoolmaster. It was a teacher. It was a way of teaching the people the principles of God. And so the law of the Old Testament is not an obsolete law. It's a law that we can go to and we can learn from and we can connect with the New Testament. And we can see that Christ is a fulfillment of all the principles of the law. So I guess in summary, don't, don't be scared by the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Read them slowly, read them carefully, think about the principles, try to look for Christ in all of the chapters of the Old Testament. And I think you'll find that the Bible comes together as a remarkable whole and is very rewarding every section that you read from. So I guess I'll uh, turn it over there to, to Ron for his section now on, on key Bible themes. Well, good evening, everybody. It's nice to be back with you again. And tonight we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And it, it really isn't a new topic uh, for these webinar series. We've touched on aspects of the kingdom and the purpose of God uh, and, and several of the evening sessions. But what we want to do uh, this evening is, is try and put the kingdom of God, first of all, in its historical context and the uh, the practical side of what the kingdom of God was all about. And when we look at the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think there is one verse which summarizes the kingdom of God. And it's in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer which most Christians in the Western society are, are familiar with. And when his disciples uh, asked Jesus how they ought to pray. Jesus said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to just highlight 
some of the comments which are in that particular prayer. And you'll notice that he talks about the kingdom of God being on the earth, but it's going to reflect the conditions that are already in heaven. And, and, and if we ask, well, what is it like in heaven? The, one of the verses that we might turn to is Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So what we have in the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was praying for the kingdom of God to come, and that those things which existed in heaven might be on the earth. Now, that brings us to the second point in this statement. God's purpose has always been with the earth. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes it very clear. John chapter 3 and verse 13, at least the writer makes it clear that no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So very clearly, we have a statement there that no man has ascended up into heaven. And the reason for that is God's purpose is with the earth. And you'll notice in the four verses that we've now got up on the screen, the first verse is, in the book of Num Numbers, which Dan has been talking about, <coughs> it says, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so when Jesus said, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, he was praying that the earth might reflect the same conditions that are now reflected in heaven, the glory of God. In fact, Psalm 115 tells us, the heavens are the heavens, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Now, when you think about that, I don't think it was God's intention to give the earth to men to do with it as they will. And, and certainly the conditions that we see in the earth today do not reflect the glory of, of God. But God gave the earth to men to develop it and to bring glory and honor to it. And the way in which they will do that, says the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so the earth will be filled with God's glory through individuals who reflect the qualities of God's character. And when we come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, once again, it says, God hath made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So it doesn't matter where you look in the New or the Old Testament, God's purpose is centered in the earth. And that's what Jesus was praying for when he made that prayer available to his disciples. Now, what was the message of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it was the kingdom of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom 
come. And that was the message that Jesus preached to the nation of Israel during his mortality. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says, Jesus came into the Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so the message of the gospel is all about God's kingdom. It's all about what God intends to do with the earth. The gospel of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he passed on the responsibility of preaching the gospel to his disciples. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so they were given the responsibility of telling people about the kingdom of God. Now, what we may not be familiar with is the fact that the kingdom of God or the message of the kingdom of God is identified with the nation of Israel. And that comes out right at the end of the Acts of the Apostles. And it was the Apostle Paul who was given the job and responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And he came to Rome as a prisoner, but he was given freedom for two years to invite people into a home which he rented and talk about the kingdom of God. And he invited the Jewish leaders in Rome to his residence. And it says, for this cause, Paul says, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And so Paul wanted to talk about this hope of Israel. And he invited the Jewish leaders to his home. And so it says, when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging. And what did he talk about? To whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning to evening. So you can see to some extent what Dan has been talking about in the Old Testament, how relevant it is to the gospel. The kingdom of God, which he equates with the hope of Israel, can be found in the law of Moses and the prophets. So it's an Old Testament doctrine. Now, Jesus, of course, was crucified and he rose again the third day. And for 40 days, he spent his time teaching his disciples who were going to carry on the work of preaching the gospel. So what did he talk about for those 40 days? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that he was seen of them, that's the disciples, for 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, what was the reaction of the disciples to his teaching? 
That's why we've got at the head of our slide the statement that the kingdom of God existed before. The reaction of the disciples is given to us in verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So there's two points that emerge from that little statement, that question. First of all, that the kingdom had existed in the past or else they wouldn't have asked, was it going to be restored? And the second point was that it had a relationship to the nation of Israel. And, and that's what many people today don't realize that the kingdom of God had existed in the past. And that's why Paul talked to the Jewish leaders and expounded the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, where do we find evidence of this kingdom existing in the past? And there are many, many verses which we could demonstrate. But time is not on our side, is it? But there was a time in the days of Solomon, the son of David, when he was made king, that we're told in First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 5, the Lord, David says, he hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now just absorb what is being said there. Solomon was, was the king in Israel. He was sitting upon the throne of David. But David describes it as the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. It was God's kingdom. And that kingdom existed in the nation of Israel. That throne he was ruling over the nation of Israel. And when Israel came out of of the land of Egypt at the Exodus. God said to them in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5 and 6 that Israel was a kingdom, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation. Now, the kingdom of God existed for something like 450 years, but it was an unfaithful kingdom. The nation of Israel failed to respond to the ways of God. They introduced all kinds of wickedness in the land of Israel. And eventually it got so bad that there was nothing else to do but to destroy the kingdom. And so in the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 21, the last king of Israel had these words spoken to him. And Ezekiel says, thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end. God had had enough of the abominations of the nation of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem, take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. Talking about the kingdom of God. 
and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. And so there will be no more kingdom of God until the rightful heir to the throne of David presented himself and God would give him that throne. Now, before we go any further, what, when we talk about the kingdom of God, what do we imagine the kingdom consisting of? Well, from a practical point of view, we have a perfect example of what a kingdom consists of in today's world. We can look at the United Kingdom of Great Britain. What does the kingdom of the United Kingdom of Britain consist of? Well, it has a monarchy. At the moment, it has a queen. For many years, it had a king. It has a government which legislates from London, England. It has a people that is ruled over. These are the subjects of the United Kingdom. And it has territory. England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales make up the territory or the land of the United Kingdom. And it also has a capital city. London, England is the capital of the kingdom of Great Britain, the United Kingdom. Now, when we analyze that and we look at the Old Testament description of the kingdom of God, that's exactly how it last, how it existed in the days of Solomon. He was the king. He had a government that assisted him in the rulership of the kingdom. There was people, the nation of Israel. It had territory, the land of Israel, and the capital city was Jerusalem. So we ask ourselves, what will the kingdom of God be like when it is established? And the answer is, it will have a monarchy. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the king. That's what he was promised at his birth. The angel said to Mary, the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. It will have a government. Individuals in this dispensation who read their Bibles, and follow the commandments of the Bible, they will one day be given immortality. And the book of Revelation says that he hath made us unto our God, those who have been faithful. God hath made us kings and priests, and we shall reign with him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there will be a government made up of immortal beings who will assist Jesus in the kingdom of God. There will be people, and some of you may recall Dan's uh, earlier sessions in the webinar when he looked at Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel chapter 2, when the image was smitten by a stone and on the feet and ground it to powder, 
And that little stone expanded until it became a great mountain filling the earth. And that's the way the kingdom will start. It will small, it'll begin as a small entity in the land of Israel. Because again, the angel promised Mary that her son would reign over the house of Jacob, that is the house of Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But it won't stop there in the land of Israel. It will expand as the nations are educated by the Lord Jesus Christ and his government. And then it says in Psalm 72, all nations, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. And so the land will primarily be the land of Israel. Ezekiel 37 tells us, that God will make them, that is Israel, one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. But eventually, the conditions will expand until they fill the whole earth. And Zechariah 14 and verse 9 says that eventually the Lord shall be king over all the land. And the capital city of that kingdom will again be Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 17 says, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall be gathered unto it. What time is he talking about? Well, take the trouble to go to Jeremiah chapter 3 and look at the context in which that is being spoken. Verse 14 onwards, it's talking about the restoration of Israel to their homeland, the land of Israel. And when people begin to see Israel restored to their land, then it's nearing the time when Jerusalem shall be reoccupied by the rightful heir to the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will reign all nations. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 35 that Jerusalem was the city of the great king. So that is in, in a very summarized form the biblical teaching of the kingdom of God. That when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the kingdom of God will be established first in Israel and it will expand throughout the entire world and then the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and if we wanted to capture in one slide something of the content of the kingdom of God it would be this. It will be a time when there will be peace on earth. It will be a time, says Psalm 72, of social equality. When there won't be any disparity between poor and rich. There will be social equality. Sickness and disease will be controlled. There will be good living standards. Amos tells us, that prosperity will be such that the reaper shall, the 
plowman shall overtake the reaper. That's how full the harvest will be. And Psalm 72 says there will be a handful of corn on the top of the mountains. And what everybody strives for today will be realized in the kingdom. Eternal youth. For the mortal population during the thousand years reign of Jesus, a child will be considered at the age of 100 years old, still a child. But it will be eternal youth for people who want to serve God now by the fact that they will be given immortality. And there's one passage which I'll leave you with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it says there, verse 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, he was made alive at his resurrection. Afterwards, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Can we imagine a world where there is no longer any more death? Life eternal, immortality, when God will be all and in all. So that's the kingdom of God in a, in a nutshell. Next week, God willing, we're going to look at Joshua and the promised land in the topic of finding your way. And under the heading of Bible, key Bible themes, we will be looking at the subject that there is only one faith. <laughs>